Acts chapter 21, uh, starting in verse 27. Listen then to the word of the Lord. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came uh, to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the yeah, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, "Away with him!" As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "May I say something to you?" And he said, "Do you know Greek?" Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people and then, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he addressed them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought uh, up in this city, educated at the feet of uh, Gamaliel. According to the strict manner of the law of the fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are, uh, are this day, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering uh, to prison men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can can bear me witness for that from them. I received letters to the brothers and journeyed towards Damascus to take those who also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw. And, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the voice of, from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone that you have of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying uh, and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we do ask that you would speak to us from your word. We ask that your word would be powerful and living and active in our midst and that the Holy Spirit uh, would be present and that Jesus's name would be glorified. We thank you for the work that you had done in Paul and in each one of us to save us from our sins. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, how do you feel about talking to strangers? How do you feel about just going up to someone and, and, and talking to them about the things of God? If someone comes to you and puts you in, a, in an unusual set of circumstances, how do you feel about talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever been in a, in a conversation with someone about God or the things of God or the Bible and you, you walk away from it and, and then you think of all the things you should have said? You say to yourself, oh, if only I would have said that. Or you, you can, if you're like me, you, you just think of like 10 other things that you should have said to answer their questions. You, you just go over that in your mind and you process it. And sometimes we even uh, feel a little bit of regret. We say, oh, if only so-and-so would have been there, he could have answered those things so much better. Or if only I would have thought of saying this. Or if only I would have maybe prepared a little more. We're in a passage of Scripture where Paul needs to be ready to, to share uh, the answers for the faith. He didn't have time uh, before this to, to prep. I heard this morning on the news with the coming presidential debate, the two candidates are hunkered away and, and running through debate prep. Paul didn't have that opportunity. It was thrust upon him in the very moment. Our main point is this this morning. Always be ready to give an answer for the faith. Always be ready to give an answer for the faith. I'm sure we all have experiences where we wish we would have said more. We think of things better. But you know what? We can learn from that. We don't have to harbor guilt and we can just look to the past and then look to the future and say, OK, how can I be ready to share my faith? Paul says in chapter 22, verse one, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make before you now. First Peter 3.15 uses that same word for defense and says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is with you or that is in you. Always be ready. If someone says to you, wow, you seem different. Why are you so upbeat? Maybe you're going through a hard time and they say, how can you have hope and faith uh, during this crisis? Always be ready to give an answer. The standard isn't whether or not we say the perfect thing at the perfect time. The standard is, are we ready? Are we trusting in the Lord to help us? Our first point this morning, as we again say, always be ready. The first thing is, do not worry about the circumstances that may lead up to you defending the faith. I think sometimes we overanalyze what could happen. We overthink what the circumstances might be. We, we worry about them. What if someone comes and says this to me? What if someone says that to me? What if I don't have an answer? What if they, they catch me off guard? What if I'm having a, a bad day and I'm not sensitive to the fact that they're asking me a spiritual question? Don't worry about the circumstances. Sometimes we worry about the hardships that it might involve. What if someone at work confronts me? What if it's my boss? What if this country turns into a direction where I can't freely share the gospel anymore? What are we going to do? I think we overthink and overworry about the circumstances. The idea of speaking to others and defending our beliefs can make us nervous. Luke says this, the gospel of Luke. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you that very hour what you ought to say. It's the same word for defend, but it's this also this command here. Do not be anxious. Don't fret it. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will guide you and direct you. Matthew chapter 10 says this, Beware of men, Jesus says, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious uh, how you are to speak or what you will say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the, the spirit of your father speaking through you. We need a sense of confidence that if the Lord puts you in those situations, the Lord is the one that is guiding the situation. The Lord is the one uh, that is directing. We need to prepare. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know how to share about Jesus. But we don't need to worry. What exactly will I say? We don't need to fret. What if I have the wrong words? What if I don't say it just right? Paul is in our passage is spotted in the temple and and he is one of these perfect examples of people being dragged before the rulers and the authorities before the synagogues and ultimately later uh, before Gentiles as he goes to Rome. He's spotted in the temple and they assume that he's blaspheming God. They assume that he's dragged this Gentile with him into the temple, that he's trying to do nothing but overthrow the temple and and pollute it from their ceremonial purity. So Paul is in the temple. He's finishing up this vow that we talked about last week. Look at verse 27. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, 
This is the man who is the teacher everywhere or teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then Luke adds the comment, for they had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Notice what they think Paul is against here. If you follow uh, verse 28, he says three things. He's against this people, meaning the Jewish people. He hates us and our ancestors, even though Paul himself is Jewish. There's this idea that he despises them. Uh, you read Romans chapter 9, the first four verses. Paul says he is in tears and he would give up his own salvation if more of his brothers in Judaism would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not true. They say that he's teaching everyone against the law of Moses. We talked about that last week, what he was saying, the freedom that we have in Christ, that that as Paul says, we are not under the law. But then you also read in Paul that the Holy Spirit writes God's law in our hearts. God, uh, Paul is not forsaking the heritage in the Old Testament and the law. He's showing how it's been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says uh, that also he hates this place or he's teaching everyone against this place, meaning the temple. The temple was probably the most sacred, was the most sacred place in Judaism at that time. And so you can imagine the fear that they had. So they seize him and they beat him. And, and, and I suggest to you this is not just a minor little uh, scuffle. I mean, they are, are wailing on him, pounding him with, with full force. Look at verse 30 and 31. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. Uh, this, is, this is the original flash mob, I guess. Everybody comes, clamors around. It says they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. So as they're pulling him out of the temple, they, they close off the gates so he can't get back in so that the violence doesn't uh, come into the temple. They're preserving it. And then it says in verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. Uh, as they were seeking to kill him, the tribune of the cohort uh, that all yeah word came excuse me to the tribune of the cohort that all in Jerusalem all Jerusalem was in uh, confusion the tribune is is kind of you know you know how you have the centurion and they're the guards uh, they're the captain of like a hundred men the tribune would have been over all of those he would have kind of been like the the captain of the the centurion so if you have you know in our army if you have a captain above a captain you have a major and above a major you have a colonel and then you have a general uh, if the centurions were like the captains this guy is is like the major or, or the colonel. He's got some authority. He's, he's got some power. And one of his jobs is to make sure that Jerusalem doesn't rebel. Uh, Rome at this time has largely suppressed Jerusalem and other nations. And the last thing they want is someone coming along and, and leading a rebellion and leading a revolt. And so the, the tribune figures, I better get down there before this mob turns into violence and this violence turns into armies and, and I'll lose my neck if the Romans get kicked out of Jerusalem. So Paul is saved by the Roman soldiers. Look at verse 33 and following. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowds were shouting one thing, some another, and he could learn, not learn the facts because of the uproar. 
he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Imagine the size of this mob. This was a, a big deal. And, and, you know, have you ever, you, you hear your kids fighting and you, you run in and, and you say, okay, what's going on here? And, and they both start talking, or, or if you have four like us, they all start talking if they were all in on the fight, and you've got four different versions of the story, and they're talking over each other. Imagine now if you did something like that in this room. If we packed this room out, and everybody was trying to talk to me all at once. And imagine something even bigger than this room, a, a giant mob maybe filling a small stadium. And trying to get answers, what is going on? And everybody's shouting. You can understand why the tribune, why the leader of the Roman soldiers could not get an answer. So he's got to take Paul out of this. And, and the mob is crushing in and pushing along. And they are such in an uproar that, that to protect Paul, they have to carry him. Maybe there are people in the crowds trying to, to hang on to to Paul's cloak. It, it, it's like the exact opposite of, of a rock concert where everybody's trying to touch the rock uh, star and get, get next to him. It's like the exact opposite because they want to kill him. But they're all clamoring around and trying to get there. And, and so they start carrying Paul. This crowd wants to kill Paul. When they say away with Paul, they're not saying, oh, good, get him out of here. Uh, like you might say to your kids, you know, go to your room. Away from here. Well, we don't quite say it that way, but, but they're not, they're, they're saying away from here in the sense of take him out and kill him. It's the same thing they said to Jesus when they said, uh, the mob said in, in John 19, they cried away with him, away with him, crucify him. Same thing, away with him, get him out of here. In Acts um, 22, verse 22, we didn't read that. That'll be next week. It says, up to this word, they listen. This is the speech he gives. It says, they listen and raise their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Same thing they were saying earlier. Away with him. Away with him. They just expand it. Away with him from the earth. He should die. This was no average mob scene. Can you imagine being in this situation? Can you imagine being worried? I, I think I'd be like, yeah, that's okay, soldiers, let's get out of here. I, I honestly don't think I'd want to say anything. I, I'd feel like I don't know what to say. Maybe, maybe you would feel that way. Do not worry what you will say in those moments. Paul had prepared or God had prepared Paul for this moment. Whatever situation the Lord puts you in to witness to a family member, to witness to a co-worker, to share the gospel with someone you just accidentally meet on the street, God has prepared you for that situation. Do you believe that? All the circumstances in your life, in a sense, have led up to that. Trust that, that God knows what he's doing. By putting you there in that moment, we often think, well, somebody else would be better here. We're kind of like Moses, you know, don't send me, Lord. I wouldn't know what to say. I'm not a good speaker. Did God know what he was doing with Moses? Yeah. 
Because Moses had to trust God in that situation. Paul has to trust God for the words to say. We have to trust God for the words to say. That brings us to our second point this morning. When the time comes, be ready to give an answer for the faith. Know that God has put you there. Be ready for it. Be willing to step up. So Paul actually asks to address the crowd. He has to talk to the tribunal. You, you have to kind of just picture this in your mind's eye. The soldiers are, are clamoring around Paul. They're carrying him away. Uh, they're starting to go up these steps. And, and it says, Paul says, may I say something to you? And the tribunal guy says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And Paul says, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak, uh, permit me to speak to the people. And then, of course, the tribunal gives him permission and Paul begins his speech standing on the steps. Actually, we know a little bit from history. We have another uh, guy that was writing at the time, a historian by the name of Josephus. And he also mentions this Egyptian man who, who tried to be a messiah and stir up a riot uh, and stir up uh, an army. At one point, Josephus tells us he had 30,000 men following him and he fled out into the desert with a few of them and the rest of them just scattered. So Luke tells us that 4,000 men went out into the desert but everybody else would have just scattered to their homes. So this Egyptian was a real guy that was going on. This this 4,000 men of the assassins, Luke uses the word here, scarios. And Josephus tells us about these people called Sicaria. And they were guys that, that they were like assassins. They were guys that carried these daggers under under their coats. And, and you would be, you know how you like get in a crowd and you're bumping around? This year for our vacation, we went down to D.C. and we rode the metro, uh, the subway, and we made the mistake of getting on the metro in rush hour. You want to talk about a crowd where you're bumping into people? You're, you're standing next to people you don't know, and you're like this far away from them, and, and it's everyone uh, around you. Could you imagine a situation like that where there are these assassins in the crowd, these, these uh, sicaria? where they, they have these knives under their, their cloaks, and they would literally assassinate people. They would, they would gather around, and they'd stab you, and they'd kind of disappear back into the crowd. And they would, they would intimidate people. They would, they would take bribes. You don't want us to kill you? That's fine. Pay up. I mean, these were ruthless people trying to incite a, a violent revolution. They killed, uh, Josephus tells us they killed uh, one of the high priests or one of the priests, uh, Jonathan, uh, to start off their, their mob violence. Do you see why the tribune guy was worried? Do you see what he was afraid Paul was and what Paul was going to do? But God uses this and he uses the, the, the Roman soldier here to give Paul an opportunity to speak. Paul is protected At this moment, not only by God, but but God uses the means of the Roman soldiers. How much more when God brings us into a situation where we need to speak up, should we learn? I don't need to fear. If God can protect Paul, don't you think he can protect you and I? How does Paul begin to share? He basically shares his testimony. And as we go through this, I I want us to learn. I think we can use our testimony for sharing the gospel. 
We can, as part of sharing the word of God, we can incorporate aspects of our personal testimony. So how does Paul start? He recounts his life before Christ. So he begins speaking in verse three. He says, I'm a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, uh, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, Uh, According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way. Uh, The way is is a common reference to speaking about Christians. That's what they called themselves. I persecuted this way, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness from them. I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Notice how Paul emphasizes his hatred of Christians. Notice what he says. He he essentially says, not only I'm I'm just like one of you, I was raised a good Jew, I grew up under the law, I went to the, the best schools. It's kind of like saying you went to Harvard, Yale, or Oxford here. He studied under the best rabbi. But then he says, I had zeal for the law, so much so that I hated and persecuted these people. Paul is the last person you would expect to get saved and come to the gospel. And now he's turned into this missionary. He says, I was being zealous for God, he says he was, all of you, as all of you are this day. Paul connects there with his audience. He's saying, I was just like you. Where you are right now, this hatred that you have, that's where I was. And God opened my heart to see the gospel. When you're a Christian, this is something that we can learn. When you're a Christian, you know and you recognize that in sin you are not better than anyone else. When you go to share the gospel with someone, you're not saying, hey, I'm this great person. I've got my whole life together. You're saying, I'm a sinner, too. I'm a sinner. What you're going through, where you are right now without Jesus Christ, that's exactly where I was. When you seek to share the gospel, people need to know that they are in sin. You cannot just skip over sin. So make sure they understand that you know that you are a sinner, that the same sin that you're talking about, you are called out of and you still Struggle with sin even though you're forgiven. But also, don't minimize the point of sin. The old saying is, you cannot share the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ saves us unless you share some of the bad news. That we have sin and sin separates us from God. You think of some examples in your your Bible First Corinthians, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through nine. The first three verses are about us being sinners and we were children of wrath. And then verse four says, but God being rich in mercy. And then he uses verses four to nine to talk about the gospel. You look at Romans, you can you can take almost the whole book and you you start in chapter one and chapter one, verse 18 down through chapter three, verse 20. It's all about sin and people don't like those verses. But then he gets to the grace of God, the wonder of God, that God would send his son to be set forth as an atoning sacrifice to pay the wrath of God that he has for our sins. Christ 
takes it away on the cross. And then he goes into chapter three and chapter four and chapter five and six, talking about what we have in Christ all the way down through chapter eight. He gets to the the riches of the grace of God. But the the lead up to that is to say, look at how bad we all are. Look at how bad I am. You and I, even as believers, as we are growing in our salvation, as we are coming to see the to, to, to grow in the knowledge of the grace of God and see the deep love that he has for us, we will be struck more and more by how sinful we really are. God will expose those things to us. When the grace of God is big in our lives, we we recognize that we don't deserve the grace. What does Paul say in Romans 7, 7? He says, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. We live in a culture that doesn't often use the language of sin. It's very alien to us. It used to be you could you could walk up to somebody on the street. You could start talking about Jesus and you could say, and we're all sinners and this is why we need Jesus. And and there was enough of a a cultural Christian background where where maybe they went to Sunday school or maybe, you know, they've seen the Ten Commandments somewhere. They would say, oh, okay, we're all sinners. Oh, wow, I never thought about that. Now, the very word or the idea of sin is foreign. We have to explain what it means. It's that separation from God. And we even have to portray God as this great creator who made the world in goodness. Not just some mean, nasty God trying to strike people down with lightning all the time. But in your sharing of the gospel, we need to lay out that we are sinners And that Christ is the Savior. And you can't effectively lay out that Christ is the Savior if you don't explain what sin is. When you tell your personal testimony, as Paul does, you need to demonstrate that you understand the reality of sin in yourself. That you know that you are a sinner and needed the Lord Jesus Christ just as much as you're asking this person, will you please believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know if you remember. Do you remember the old uh, commercials for the hair loss uh, where the doctor gets up and he says, you know, not only am I a doctor, but I'm also a client. And, and he shows that he's bald. Um, that's how we are, in a sense. Not only am I giving you the medicine, sharing the gospel with you. I'm saying I'm also a partaker of the medicine. I needed the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then goes on and he describes his encounter with Jesus. Look at verses 6 through 11. As I was on my way and drew near Damascus and about noon, a great light shone from heaven, uh, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He goes on and says that the people that were with him, they saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice. And then the Lord instructs them to to him to go up into Damascus. And Paul had to be led by these people. Notice a couple things. One, Jesus appears to Paul. Jesus himself 
appears to Paul. Notice what it says. Number two, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I always ask this question. When did Paul ever touch, beat or persecute Jesus? Physically, I mean, he never did. He always beat up the church. He was always persecuting the church. But you see, this teaches us something about Jesus and salvation. When we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, our our connection to him is so close. Our our union with him, our spiritual union is so tight, so complete that what Paul is doing to the church, it's as if he was doing it to the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. That, that scripture describes the church, us as believers, as the body of Christ, of which Christ is the head. Let me ask you this. Are your head and body connected today? I, I should certainly hope so. It's not going to go well for you if your head isn't on straight. That is the connection that we have in the church to Jesus Christ. Paul beats up Christians and Jesus comes and says, you're beating me up. As Paul preaches the gospel, as he writes in the book of Romans and other places, he talks about us being in Christ. I think part of where Paul got that from is some of the understanding he came to to see at his conversion. The church that he was persecuting was in Christ so that he was persecuting Christ himself. The last thing we should notice is how this has echoes of of God appearing in the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah? Remember how he was in the temple and he saw the glory of the Lord shine? And he said, woe am I, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, he says, I'm a sinner. And Paul sees the same glory of the Lord coming out of heaven. And yet he sees this glory radiating out of Jesus Paul knows his Old Testament. I assume that as Paul grew in the faith and Paul came to understand these things, he understood his experience to be just like Isaiah's. And yet he understood something else, that the one that he saw was also Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord who was crucified and risen again. And this is why Paul can go into the world and preach the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory Paul uses this in his ministry as analogous to our conversion experience. So you and I aren't going to have the exact same experience as Paul. None of us, even in this room, have the exact same conversion experience. But we, by and large, do not walk down the street and see God open up heaven and talk to us. But when you come to the gospel in a similar analogous way, God has opened your eyes Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, this is the unbeliever. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What did Paul see on the road to Damascus? He saw the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say in a spiritual sense we see when we come to saving faith? 
We see that Jesus is Lord. We see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We recognize that He's Savior, that He is Lord, that He is the King of kings. And we we get down on our knees and we say, I need the forgiveness of sins. And when you share the Gospel and when you share your testimony, you are inviting people to see how wondrous Jesus is. How glorious and majestic. We We are saying He's the Savior. We are saying He is Lord. He has all of this glory and all of this power. And and don't you want to know Him? He's someone that you can't just come into His presence because of our sin. But wouldn't you like to know how to do that? Wouldn't you love to be forgiven? To know the Creator of all things? Imagine being in His presence for all eternity. It's going to blow our minds. It's going to be wondrous. How do people come to saving faith? Paul says that we need to preach to them. Romans 10:17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Let me say this. If you use your testimony as part of sharing the gospel with someone, even, even as Paul describes his conversion experience, make sure you share with them who Jesus is. Make sure you share with them that Jesus died on the cross for sins and rose again from the dead. You are not just sharing, what did Jesus do in my life? This is not just about personal experience, although it includes that. This is about what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection And the reason your saving faith has value, the reason that it changed your life and is meaningful is because of the one to whom your faith is in and what he did. Let me ask you this. Can a Buddhist give a personal testimony about their conversion to Buddhism? Yeah. Can a Muslim give a personal testimony about their conversion? You see, we live in a culture where where if you just share your testimony, they'll say that that is nice. That's true for you. Or they'll say, well, I'm glad that works for you. You see, when you share your testimony and when you share the gospel, you're not just saying this is what works for me. You know, this is nice for me. But if you want to try something else, go ahead and do that. You're saying This is what God did in my life. But this is why. This message of the gospel is is binding to all. That if you hear this, you, you are accountable to it. You need to believe this. You need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that goes beyond just this is me and my personal truth. Can we use our testimonies in sharing the gospel? Can we say, you know, this is what God did to me. This is where I was. I was. This is how my sin was. This is what my life was like. This is what God brought me through. And, and now this is where I am. Yeah, we can we can do that. Uh, it can it can sometimes be helpful because we don't know what to say. And we just share, you know, this is what I've experienced. But you also have to make clear what is the truth of your experience grounded in? This is not something that's just true for you. It is true because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we make a defense. 
Third, this morning, part of the defense of the faith is that this is the plan of God for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to notice that Ananias comes before Paul in verses 12 and 13, and he says, Brother Saul, uh, receive your sight back. And that very hour, he says, I received my sight and saw him. God then granted it to believe. Look at what Ananias says in verse 14 and 15. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and what you have heard. You have known his will. You have seen the righteous one and you have heard his voice. That's a perfect description of salvation. We come to know the will of God, that God's will was that the Lord Jesus Christ should come forth and die on the cross for our sins, that this is his plan to save a people unto himself. The will of God is not a mystery. It has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen Jesus as the righteous one. There's an allusion there to Isaiah 53. Uh, You'll just have to go back and and look it up for yourself. But uh, Paul's connecting to the Old Testament. But we see Jesus. We recognize him as the perfect savior. We we hear his voice, maybe not audibly. But what does Jesus say? My sheep know my voice. We come to the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ has called us to himself. We come because, as it says here, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. It's, it's this idea of being chosen or destined or appointed to a task. God had a plan in store for Paul. And he worked out this salvation in the life of Paul so that Paul came to saving faith. It's true of each one of us. God knew us from before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. And then in Ephesians 1, 9, it describes our conversion as him, quote, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth. In Christ, when you get saved, God reveals himself to you. He opens your heart to see the gospel. It is the working of the power of God. And when you understand salvation, as Paul did, you stand before God and you say, I have nothing. Why is it when, when we talked about sharing your testimony that I, that I made the point that, that we should emphasize that we, we came from sin just like the people that we're trying to talk to, to invite to come to Jesus. It's not some cheap public speaking trip to say, well, hey guys, I'm just like you. It's not some sort of cheap, let's build some, some identification here. It really is the truth. We're dead in our sins. We are lost. What would have Paul kept doing in his life if God hadn't appeared to him on the road to Damascus? How many Christians do you think he would have killed? Quite a lot. Even if you're like me where you grew up in a Christian home. 
Where would you be if the Lord Jesus hadn't opened your eyes to see the gospel, to see what he did on the cross, to to place your faith and trust in him? I'd be lost and dead in my sins. I'd either be a really good religious person that everybody thinks is full of morals, or maybe I would have wandered and, and went out and sowed my wild oats, to, to, so to speak. I, I don't know. But the point is, each one of us is dead in our sins until the Lord Jesus Christ opens our hearts. And this is who Paul was, and this is who we are, and this is the working of the mystery of the purpose of God, that God saves sinners of which I am the worst, to quote the Apostle Paul. Paul is also in this moment called to be an apostle. Look, though, at verse 16 where he receives the forgiveness of sins. And now, why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I don't know at exactly what moment Paul got saved. We're not really told that. You know, he saw Jesus Christ, so he obviously had some sort of faith. But, he, but, but Ananias here is, is, is telling him, you know, rise up, be baptized, wash your sins away, call on the name. At, at what exact point did he, he get converted? I, I don't know. You know, if Paul would have died between the Damascus experience and, and Ananias, would he, would he really have been saved? I don't know. That's not the point. The point is that that even though Paul has this experience of seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus that that we don't ever experience, uh, not literally anyways, Paul got saved the same way that we get saved. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and as a testimony to receiving the forgiveness of sins, he was baptized into the name of Christ, that he took on Christ. Christ came into his heart being baptized into his death and resurrection so that everything that Jesus did on the cross is now applied to Paul's life. That's what happens when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross now applies to your life. Your sins are covered and washed away. And baptism is a testimony of saving faith. And calling on the name of the Lord is, is what Paul uses to describe in, in Romans crying out for salvation. He says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul got saved just like the rest of us. We need to share the gospel. We need in the sharing of our gospel, we can and should use our personal testimonies. But make sure you explain the importance of saving faith. You're not just saying this is what I did. You're saying that it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that you can be saved. This is the only way to receive salvation, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you share your faith, when you share your testimony of God, puts you in a situation where you're able to talk about what Jesus has done and and able to share some of the scriptures or some of your your testimony. You need to invite people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Call on them to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't just just leave it hanging with sort of a, well, Jesus Christ died on the cross and he can save you from your sins. Oh, lunch break is over. Time to clock back in. 
But invite them. Do you see that you're a sinner? Would you like to receive the forgiveness of sins? Maybe you even plead with them. Wouldn't you please just accept Jesus into your life? Look at what he has done. Look at what I've laid out to you. Please, this is a matter of your life and death. Accept this. Simply just ask him. Have you ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you like to do that? You don't need to to twist their arm and beat them up if, if they say no. But but impress upon them. You know, I'm I'm going to keep praying for you because this really matters. This this really will change your life. If you don't turn to Jesus, you know, I'm worried about you. I know I didn't have any hope without Jesus. And I know the Bible says that we don't have any hope but condemnation without Jesus. Make sure you call on the person to believe. That's what I think what Ananias does. Rise up, be baptized, wash your sins, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul describes, earlier in the book of Acts, the book of Acts describes the ministry of Paul. And it says, when he was one time teaching, it says, when the Gentiles heard this in Acts 13, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, that as many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of God was spread throughout the whole region. Paul was the last person that you would expect, humanly speaking, to come to saving faith. But God had appointed him to this, and at the time and place, he heard the gospel, and he came to saving faith. Paul has people, in, or God has people in every tongue, tribe, and nation that he is going to save. And the gospel will come to them. And God will open their eyes just like he did to Paul. And they will come to saving faith. The exciting thing about evangelism, about sharing your testimony, about being ready to give an answer for the faith is you and I get to be a part of that process. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, God has a sovereign plan. He'll do it. So if I don't say anything, that'll be fine. How many people did God use? Excuse me. How many? Yeah. In the life of Paul, how many people got saved because Paul suffered and in his suffering, he gave an answer for the faith? I don't know, but it was quite a few. That I see as being beaten and dragged through the temples, through the courts, into Rome. People see what he's going through. They hear his testimony and they receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you are and whatever your testimony is, God can use it to call people to saving faith. If you're faithful, just be faithful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day and the opportunity to go through your word and We just ask that it would feed us. We ask that it would convict us, nourish us, build us up, anchor us strongly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.